hear what God does in our lives. We all have our own journey to Jesus and with Jesus. And so you have a story to tell because you are a witness to the risen Lord Jesus in your life. Um, one of the things that's part of Chantel's story and is probably part of yours is that you were redirected in your life. When we use the word repentance, we're basically saying, God redirected me, and I said yes. I, I turned, and it changed the trajectory of my life because I was redirected. And one of the ways the Word of God works in our life is the Word of God works to redirect our lives. Now, some of us sometimes resist direction. Have you ever been that person where you resisted direction? And so along the way, I've really enjoyed the Proverbs, and some of the translations are very direct. So here's Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Oh, oh, that's so direct. <laughs> that's so direct right there in the Proverbs. And there are many Proverbs like that where it, it talks about our resistance to being corrected. You know, one of the issues is how teachable am I? How teachable are you? Do you know that great athletes love to be corrected? This is one of the features of high-performance athletes, is that they love to be corrected because that correction means they can perform better. Now, when we bring this to our Christian life, there's, there's a danger we might love to be corrected, but it's not just so that we perform better, but it's so that we can better access the grace and power of God for us, so that we can better access the full work of the love of God in our life. Because we're not on this side of trying to clean our lives up so God will like us. In fact, we are actually doing something very different. Those listening to Paul at times said, you seem to have a strange gospel, this good news, because you're saying you don't make yourself pretty for God. Instead, you let God love you and pour out his grace in, his, in your life through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that actually generates a cleanup act in your life. It redirects our life because we've experienced the love of God. It's such a different space. Sometimes that's described as very religious, trying to get God on our side by cleaning ourselves up. But instead, the what's revealed in the scripture about God it's very different. We are responding to him. We are responding to his grace. We are responding to being loved and forgiven. We're responding to being known. 
So in some ways, when we give ourselves to the reading of Scripture, it's not just that we are seeking to get to know God, but we're letting the Scripture read us. Are you letting the Scripture read you when you read the Bible? That that Scripture is reading you and revealing something about you in your relationships. This is what the Holy Spirit does with the Word of God. Do you know, when you go to class, you're mostly looking for information, right? What information is going to be on the test? I know it's so crass. But you want to know, do we need to know this for the test? That's the information that really frustrates professors. They want you to love the learning. So you can read the Bible for a lot of information, but God loves it when you read the Bible to get to know him. I'm longing to know the words of God, how God sees me. One of the things that's revealed in the scripture is that we were created for relationships. You will know this picture, some of you. That we were created for four kinds of relationships, right? A relationship with God, a relationship with self, a relationship with people, and a relationship with the stuff of earth. And to be a follower of Jesus means that we've taken up the cross of Christ, and now we see all of our relationships through the lens of the cross. I see my relationship with God through the cross of Christ. I see my relationship with myself and God's relationship with me through the lens of the cross. I see my relationship with people through the lens of the cross. And I see my relationship with the stuff of earth through the lens of the cross. That is a radical transformation of view. It changes your point of view. In fact, it changes your world view. But in order to get there, in order to let the Word of God work this way in our lives, we have to be willing to be corrected. I'll read that proverb again. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. But whoever hates correction is stupid. Do you love correction? There's a certain element of correction that's painful, right? It, it's, it's painful to be corrected. It, it's like if we're in that zone of um, it's a shame to not know everything, then correction sucks. If you have early traumatic experiences in school where everything that you wrote seemed to bleed red, you, you've been conditioned to feel lots of pain with correction. But do you know, I was listening to an interview with 
um, a world champion weightlifter. She is a high-performance weightlifter. She could probably lift four of me. She's really strong. And she was talking about what it takes to go into the gym. And she said, on my first day in a high-performance gym, all of the lessons on the first day were on how to fail in the gym. How to fail and not get killed. Because when you lift a heavy weight and you're beginning to fail, you need to know how to get out from under it, right? Right, Ransford? Right? You need to let it hit the ground and you don't need to be under it. You needed to know how to fail. And she said, it was such a different point of view. And she said, that perspective began to change everything in my life. And I wonder if we could learn something from it in our approach to the Word of God. Is it possible that you could approach the Word of God and say, it's okay if I fail at this. This is going to be such a mighty and idealistic and perfect view of Jesus. I could, I could fail at that, and it's going to be okay. I am going to grow through this. Do you know, when, when Paul looked at the church of Ephesus, when he sent Timothy there, the church of Ephesus had failed. The church of Ephesus had had a catastrophic leadership failure. I mean, you read First and Second Timothy, and it's like, Paul is describing things in here like, Timothy, you've got to stay there. You've got to stay there until these things happen. They weren't happening. Timothy was finding that that church was in an immense mess. It's strange because previous to this, Paul had written the book of Ephesians and the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus was all beauty and glory and wonder and just how awesome Jesus is and how awesome Jesus is in the church and how Jesus empowers us to live in the world. It's all good news. And then you get to First and Second Timothy and it's like, oh my God, what happened here? We're not sure. In Acts chapter 21, when Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian leaders, he says, I'm afraid that there's some among you who are going to rise up like wolves to devour the flock. Later, Jesus would comment on the Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 3, and he says, I know you, you hate the Nicoletians, the Nike people, the ones who were all about victory. So there had been a rise of leaders in the church who were about self-promotion above Christ and above others. The second problem that happened in the church in Ephesus is, it's in the letters of Timothy, is that some false teachers had arisen who actually began to say, the resurrection has already happened. You missed it. I mean, if you all ever had that moment where you watched those silly movies um, about, you know, raptured, 
And then the next morning you wake up and your house is all quiet, you're home alone, and it's like, did the rapture happen? You know, is there anybody left? It's about fear, right? And so there were those teaching in the church that the return of Jesus had happened, the resurrection had happened, and they weren't in it. And it generated all kinds of unhealth. In fact, Paul calls it gangrene. It's rot. It's like an infection of rot in the body of Christ, this false teaching. And it had spread in the church. Now, Timothy was being encouraged by Paul to stay put and help that church regain health. And one of the things that Paul kept doing and telling him was, remember the example I gave you and remember the message. Remember the example I gave you and remember the message. Over and over and over, Paul tries to remind Timothy, who's a young leader, a young servant in this church, remember my example. Remember the message. Remember the word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says this, Remember how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's a verse worth memorizing, okay? 2 Timothy 3.16. How could we view the Scriptures? How can we view the Bible? And he says this, all Scripture is God breathed. That's our word for inspired. It's been inspired by God. Now, to Timothy, when Paul used this word, it's likely that Timothy understood and had this picture of the inspiring work of God providing this word through the lives of writers and people, and it would have been the Old Testament, the Old Testament scripture that this is what Paul was speaking of as an inspired word. And in that idea of inspiration would have been true. It's a true word that's useful, that's beneficial. And so Paul says that plainly. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And look at the four things he says it's useful for. It's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You got it? You ready? It's useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The first pair speak of belief. These are words related to belief. These are the words of teaching the message but it's also a word that rebukes us for what is false in what we believe. So if I believe something about God, myself, people, 
or the stuff of earth. The scripture is good for rebuking me about that, correcting me, turning me, redirecting me in regard to what I believe. And you know, I have absorbed all kinds of beliefs in my life, all kinds of beliefs. In fact, you have too. Most of us Our beliefs are set in our life first and foremost by what our parents believe. What do your parents believe about how the world works? What do your parents believe about money? What do your parents believe about pain? What do your parents believe about conflict? What do your parents believe about success? That was the beginning space of just absorbing those beliefs. The second thing that happens in our life, and it's, it's progressive for how we live, the second person, persons that influence us as we get older are our peers. What do our peers think and believe about the world? And we start absorbing that and massaging and changing, and then we get a little bit of teenage rebellion, and we're like, my parents are so stupid. They don't know anything. I know none of you would ever say that out loud, but it's there. And so then we've absorbed this because we've transferred our affection to our friends and we absorb their beliefs in the world. I know some of you are thinking like, I am a rock solid of belief and I have believed what I believe since I was born and no one has changed me. Probably not true. Then, you know, after our parents comes our professors. Do you know there's always one or two professors in our life that actually taught us something besides knowledge, and we admired their life. We admired the way they worked. Maybe it's not just a professor. Maybe it's a coach. But it's some other adult in your life that you're like, you know, I want to be like Mike. And so we just sort of take in, well, what do they believe? We take that into our life. And then we get old enough to vote. And now our politics begin to form our beliefs. This is how to be an adult, is to get to vote. How many of you have voted? Yeah, that's good. But you've had to formulate some beliefs in that process about how you would make those choices. So those are there in your life. Those are very powerful for forming beliefs in our lives. But I'll tell you the most powerful. It's our pain. Our pain, regardless of how old we were. Out of our pain, we form all kinds of beliefs. Out of our pain, we begin to accept certain lies into our life. One of the lies I accepted in my life because I was embarrassed and ashamed in a moment where I should have been I should have felt great as I came out of that moment saying, no one will ever accuse me of being just a stick in the mud. So I I set out with a certain kind of hardness in my heart. But the Word of God begins to challenge all those beliefs the belief that somehow I needed to be perfect in order to be lovable. The belief that I needed to achieve all kinds of things in order to have security in life. 
the belief that people who fail are not worthy of love. The belief that men who cry might as well go ahead and die. These are beliefs that are worthy of being corrected. And all of Scripture is God-breathed and is able to teach us the truth and to rebuke us for what is false. But the second pairing here is that all Scripture is useful for correcting and training in righteousness. And these are the words that relate to behavior and attitude. Behavior and attitude. That my behavior can be corrected, but my behavior can also be trained for righteousness. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How to live as a kingdom citizen. I can learn new things. This old dog can learn new tricks. This is good news. And that the scripture can help me see the behaviors to put off and the behaviors to put on. And sometimes when I do the right thing, but my attitude sucks, the scripture says, ah, you're nothing because you did that without love. You know, you washed the dishes that your roommate left, but you banged them and you cursed him and you went all along and there was no love in it. You did the right thing. You washed them. But there was no love. And so the scripture says that's nothing. Why would we want belief, behavior, and attitudes to be changed in our life so that I can be more like Jesus, more like the one who loves me, more like the one who knows me, more like the one who's going to greet me for all eternity. He says, this is good because the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the word that Paul wanted Timothy to have as he faced a crisis. Go back to the scripture. Remember my example. Go back to the scripture. You can be thoroughly equipped for every good work, including this one. So every good work that God is planning for you, he wants to equip you for it. He wants to equip you with his word. He wants to empower you by his spirit. There's a funny story that was shared by another pastor. He had had a terrible shoulder pain. Jerry, he wrote about this. His name's Jerry. And Jerry says, I had a terrible shoulder pain and it went on for months. So then I finally went to the doctor. And the doctor says, oh, there's a name for what you have. It's called frozen shoulder. And yes, it's, it's painful, but you're just getting older. <laughs> there's some physical therapy I can give you, but I can also give you a shot right now in your shoulder of a cortisone that will 
make you not feel the pain and it'll help as you enter. And I had the therapist is up there going, yep, yep, we can do this. And so the, uh, the doctor has the needle in hand, is, you know, swabbing the spot and says, uh, what do you do for a living? And the guy took a deep breath and he says, well, I'm a pastor. He says, you know, like, do you have a church? He asked the doctor in that moment, you know, needle in hand. And the, past, the doctor says, no, no, I left that behind. I'm not really into that. But let's, let's get this into you so that you can, you know, start raising your finger again and pointing at people and telling them what they have wrong in their life. <laughs> and he gave him the shot. You know, that is sometimes how the world experiences our conversations about the Word of God. And we also, you know, in our Canadian culture, we're, we're very afraid that, oh, if I bring up the Scripture, they're going to think I'm pointing at them, that I'm accusing them, that I'm judging them, that I think I'm better than them. No. You could have a judgmental, self-righteous attitude. I once did in the way I tried to go about the work of God. But God also began to do his work to change my attitude so that I could begin to speak of the truth of the word of God as wisdom for living, as wisdom for life, where I could open the word of God without fear and wondering about, well, what are others going to think about me? But I could let the word of God stand there. And when the Word of God stands there, the Word of God does correct. The Word of God does rebuke. It doesn't rebuke us just individually, but also systemically. As a group, the Word of God can say, hey, the way you're living is a mess. Part of reading the Word of God well is to read it in context. So one of our favorite verses, right, is Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door to me, I will come in and eat with them and them with me. Such a great picture. We usually share it, one, as salvation, and then two, the individual believer who's been away for a while. Jesus is knocking. But do you know the context of that? when Jesus was speaking to the Ephesian church after Timothy's ministry, he says, look, I know you, you now hate the Nicoletians. You hate the victory leaders. That's good. He says, but I hold one thing. One thing I hold still against you. You've left your first love. And he's speaking to the whole church. He says, you've left your first love. Oh, that you would go back and do what you used to do. Oh. And then Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. So it's almost as if Jesus gathered, the church gathered, and we left Jesus out there in the hall. That's the context of the verse. The church left Jesus out. Hmm. We don't want that, do we? 
But he says, I, I'm available. Look, I can come. Love his word and say, come, Holy Spirit, come. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper in a moment. And I, I don't know what part of conviction the Spirit brought to you about repenting today, redirecting. Perhaps it's just as simple as saying, Lord, I want to be redirected to your word. I'm willing to receive your word. Let's trust that God is breathing through his word to move our lives. Maybe it's to just say, Lord, you know, I've got this hard thing in my life where I don't think I'm lovable. Let the truth of your cross and your word convince me today that I'm loved. As the worship team comes, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper. We invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to receive the bread and to receive the cup as the reminder of Jesus' grace in your life.